In a world of uncertainty, one thing is for sure. Cancer doesn't stop during a global crisis. On Saturday, June 13th, the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, LLS, will host a trailblazing event, Big Virtual Climb, sponsored by AbbVie. To support their investment in groundbreaking research to advance blood cancer cures and its first-in-class patient education and services, including financial support and clinical trial navigation. Step up to take cancer down by climbing 61 floors or 1,762 steps. Inside or outside, on stairs, on the road, or your treadmill, climb your way. Join us for an opening ceremony and then take on your climb with our heart-pumping playlist. Join us on June 13th, coast to coast, as we come together to climb, conquer, and cure. Register at lls.org slash bigclimb. Welcome to another edition of the Metrospective. Pete McCarthy along with Tim Britton. And uh, Tim, how are you doing? Does that cover it? Is that good enough? Yeah. <laughs> is, no, I think is that is a... sigh good enough? A perfectly appropriate sound in this moment in the midst of a global pandemic and now uh, unrest uh, across the country, including here in New York City, uh, as protesters against systematic race racism that's been uh, part of this country and uh, obviously Pete Alonzo putting out a, a statement over the last few days on Instagram the Mets as well on Monday I'll give you the Mets statement Queens New York is one of the most diverse areas in our country we take pride in our diversity it is our strength that is why we denounce all forms of racism and discrimination we stand with our state city community and hope to be a part of positive change in our society. And then Pete Alonzo on Instagram this weekend uh, wrote that for the past couple of days, I've struggled to wrap my mind around what's happening. I have a voice. I will not remain silent. My heart has been broken over the murder of George Floyd. I will never know what it feels like to be discriminated against because of the color of my skin. To anyone who faces this type of discrimination, I will fight for you and be an ally. I will always stand with you. There needs to be justice and change made for the better of humanity. Let words be our sword and unity be our armor. Take care of each other. Now, I read that from Pete Alonzo, and that seems to be a pretty simple statement to be able to make right now after watching that video, nearly nine minutes of a police officer with his knee on the neck of George Floyd. But... A lot of athletes don't want to enter into this arena. Pete Alonso was one of the earlier athletes to do it. And afterwards, Michael Jordan, Derek Cheater, and, and others, almost it's become uh, almost every star in any sport or college coaches or uh, NBA coaches or NFL coaches, you name it. Everybody is kind of giving their two cents on this situation. And it seems like there's largely one side beyond the you know some of the rioting and looting that we've seen as part of the protests or around the protests but uh, we've talked about Pete Alonso's leadership abilities before but I think it is telling that in a baseball world that is largely conservative Alonso uh, willing to to put himself out there a little bit and 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 take a little heat on social media which which was part of this on his Instagram post Tim 
Yeah, you know, baseball certainly these days does not have kind of the undercurrent of social justice that we see uh, in the NBA and the NFL. Obviously, African-American participation in baseball has been down uh, for a long time. So it is reassuring to see someone like Alonzo. You know, the, the sentence that's that stood out to me was, I have a voice and I will not remain silent. Uh, and we've talked about this with, with Pete before, uh, this idea of him understanding the platform that he has as a professional athlete in the city of New York. Uh, and even though he, he's not someone who grew up here, uh, you know, someone who lives here in the offseason or anything like that, and he's only been in the major leagues in New York for one season, uh, we say it all the time, he gets it. He gets what, what it means to be an athlete with his kind of profile. Uh, and I, I thought it was really nice to see him come out and say something that had a bit more substance to it than some other official mm-hmm. statements. You know, that the, the Mets statement is is nice. It's, it's a little bit corporate. Uh, you know, Queens is very diverse. Diversity is our strength. Um, it has but, the black you know, and white it, it, type it that every brand is putting out there with these statements right now, right? There's kind of right, a look and a feel when the, the, the brands get involved in these things where it did feel Pete's was a bit more personal. Yeah, you get the minimalist layout and all that, and we stand with our community. Uh, you know, it's a lot of passive voice kind of things. Uh, you know, Alonzo's takes more of a stand. It, it it describes it as a murder of George Floyd, and, and I don't know that anyone who watched that video can feel very differently about it, uh, mm-hmm. or, or anyone who has paid attention over uh, years and decades cannot see uh, kind of this, this pattern of behavior go on. Uh, so it's, it's nice to see not just uh, athletes... Uh, not just black athletes in, in the NBA and the NFL come out, but you've also got people like Alonzo, people like Jack Flaherty with the Cardinals, uh, people like Sean Doolittle with the Nationals come out and say things like this. Um, that, that's a good sign, I think, for baseball. The Last Dance documentary has brought up the ongoing debate that no one will ever win. Is Michael Jordan the GOAT or is LeBron the GOAT? Well, one thing we do know for sure is Manscaped is the GOAT for men's grooming. It's the only men's brand dedicated to below-the-waist grooming and hygiene. And that's important because you don't want any snags or anything bad like that happening. They have ceramic blade and skin-safe technology, uh, so it will design your own triangle offense down under. Manscaped is forever changing the grooming game with their Perfect Package 3.0 Essentials Kit. It comes with a cordless body trimmer. It is water-resistant. Performance boxer briefs come as well, as well as a travel bag for you to use when you're done quarantining. So get 20% off and free shipping with the code THEATHLETIC at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com. Use code THEATHLETIC. I I think so as well, and... Um, look, there really should, at this point, I don't know how you could not acknowledge that there is a, a systemic racism as part of uh, the policing of this country, even watching some of the videos of, you know, these protests and what is happening. And I know, you know, with the, the videos, you could, you know, both sides it with the, the looting versus the actual protests. But when you see the protests in, in some of these cities where, you know, the police, and this happened in various neighborhoods in New York as well, where the police do take a knee with the protesters. That That is powerful. And I know, you know, covering sports over the years, the way that Colin Kaepernick's peaceful protests were handled by many, and, and there was an outrage about them. 
you can you know see how we end up at a point where people feel like, well, we tried to do it the peaceful way. You didn't listen. So now this is where we're at. And it's a, a, a desperation to be heard uh, on a lot of fronts. Yeah, and, and I understand that this is a baseball podcast and sports are supposed to be our escape and we want to be talking about uh, the Mets uh, and like a Sunday night game that they played last night in L.A. that, you know, that would have been or at home against the Dodgers, uh, that that would have been the conversation in a normal year in normal circumstances. But you have to understand that that for African-Americans in this country, there is no escape from this. This is a part of daily life. There is no easing back and listening to a podcast and escaping everything. Uh, this is a part of I their identity. And it's a part of, of living life every day that that you and I don't go through and don't understand on a regular basis. No, and uh, I, I think you bring up a good point. I, typically, we're going to talk Mets on this podcast. That's what it's going to be about. But when you consider what is happening in our country and in our city here in New York, I, I just I, I don't see how you can ignore it and kind of move on and say, hey, let's not get into you know some of the messy politics of, of this. This is, I just think, clear. Uh, and I think that's uh, an opinion that, that all of us, have to try to reach and and share and uh, hopefully we can move forward with some of these things in a more just society so look that's uh, kind of what we're looking at here and we hope that everyone stays safe from the uh, protesters to the police officers in this city uh, it is a it's it's a scary time in a lot of ways, uh, considering, again, this is all happening in the midst of a pandemic. And uh, we'll see what the impact of that is over the course of the next few weeks. But from a baseball perspective here on the podcast, we're going to bounce around a little bit over the course of the show. Uh, we do some news uh, that came out Monday from ESPN. Jeff Passan reporting that uh, Major League Baseball is now saying, hey, players, you can have your prorated share of your salaries but we're going to have a very short season if that's going to be the case. And passive reporting in the neighborhood of 50 regular season games. And, and this seems like a, a pretty interesting volley in this back and forth. The players asked for over 100 games to be played as they're looking to get, you know, what, close to 70% of their pay. And the owners saying, look, we can't do that. You want to get paid by the game, then it's going to be a very short season, which uh, in baseball, 50 games, I mean, that's that's to Memorial Day. You think about how much uh, can happen with that kind of a, a short season. Yeah, I, I thought the initial proposals from from the owners and then from the Players Association. So, you know, the, the 82 games with, with severe salary reductions for uh, players and the, the owner's proposal, the 114 games prorated, both of those felt very much like this is everything we want and here is, uh, we're, we're trying to kind of win this PR battle. Like ownership introduced its proposal and it was, hey, we want to play. Like the players would be the ones saying no to our reasonable proposal to play. And the players said, we want to play even more. You're going to be the ones saying no to more games. Uh, and so I, I thought it was interesting that, that the owners took the opposite tack now they'll say 50 games dave lennon at newsday did the very quick math that hey they you know they started at 82 and the players say 114 now the owners say 50 that's 32 less than 82 the same way 114 was 32 more uh it seems like this is setting up to compromise back at 82 at some point um 
but it's it's really just figuring out how much players make, whether it's the full prorated salary, uh, whether they agree on a percentage that isn't as severe or as punitive uh, as the owner's initial proposal. Uh, it's nice that the movement on this is happening quicker, that it's you know, that initial mm. proposal from the owners seemed to take forever after we heard that, you know, June 10th was when they were trying to start up a spring training. Uh, now we're at June 1st. Then it took five days for the players to get back. Now we're, we're you know, it's a weekend and they get back. Uh, so hopefully the, the pace of the negotiations can quicken, uh, you know, both sides haven't really moved a whole lot at this point, uh, but we're starting to get there a little bit more. I think the, the 50 games, that's what, um, you know, 62 and a half percent or so of the 82 and, and, uh, the salary reduction the other day that the initial proposal was about 65% of, of the initial salaries. So, you know, you can see where Major League Baseball is going with this. I think it probably ends up with a full salary for a little bit less than 82 games or something like that. Uh, but but you're starting to see the form of a, an eventual compromise take shape, at least. At least I think. Well, you're still, you're still seeing this negotiation play out publicly, which I think frustrates people. But at the very least, it's more positive because it there's the report uh, from Buster Olney this weekend that, hey, there are some owners that are happy to just shut the door on this season and you know, not have to take a, a loss or, or pay the players as far as payroll goes. And if the, there are owners that just want to lock things out, it's not going to be a very popular stance. And then you have them, I think, trying to pin it on the players and make the players look bad because people know what money is on the line for the players. They don't know what money is on the line uh, here for these ownership groups who we, we know these franchises sell now for billions of dollars, but we don't know uh, the revenue on a yearly basis uh, for, for these teams. So, uh, you know, it continues to play out, but hopefully hopefully it just it, it's more positive and you can see these steps as you're talking about, Tim, getting to some kind of middle ground rather than two sides in their bunkers, uh, so to speak, uh, far separately from from one another and not being willing to 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 move at all. Yeah, you know the you mentioned kind of the the asymmetry of information. We all know that Garrett Cole is is got a three hundred twenty six million dollar contract. We know Mike Trout's supposed to make thirty seven million dollars this year. We don't know how much uh, the, the Yankees are supposed to make this year. We don't know how much the Angels are, are going to make this year or how much they've made in years past. Uh, and so it, it's easier for uh, a regular fan to just say, I mean, if you're, what's the difference between making 37 million and 18 million or 18 million and, and 6 million or something like that? It's, it's a ridiculous amount of money to play a game considering the circumstances the world is going through right now, which is not necessarily a false thing to say. Uh, it's just a matter of, of looking at it from both perspectives that the owners are also, you know, the owners get, you know, they, they take on risk. They say the reason we make the money we do is because we take on risk. Um, and this is a risk you take on as an owner, that something like this is possible. You don't think of it, but it's possible. Uh, and it's, it seems like this shouldn't be all on players to take uh, the financial hit. Uh, and if the owners were more open with their finances, certainly the players union would not be as... Uh, as skeptical of the claim that they're make, they're making less and less money or they're losing money with each additional game that they they play this year. You know, Pete, one of the hardest parts of this quarantine for me at least has been figuring out, you know, what's open, where can I go, where can I get out of my apartment to get food, to get anything in this city. Uh, so most of our listeners in and around the city, you're going through the same thing. So what better way to promote your business than through our show where you're stuck listening to at home? Our listeners are loyal and engaged, 
So what better way to advertise your business than on your favorite podcast, The Metrospective? To advertise on this very show, just go to theathletic.com slash podcast ads. There you can fill out a very simple form. We'll get back to you right away. So go to theathletic.com slash podcast ads today. And look, when you talk about the long-term health of the sport, if the baseball doesn't come back because they can't decide on the dollars and the cents between the two sides of the union as well as the owners. And that's going to be a huge long-term hit for baseball. And as we've talked about, players' careers are relatively short. I would think that, that that's going to depress the values in these franchises and, and hurt baseball in a way that the owners aren't the ones that are in it for the, the mega long haul here. Uh, so, you know, that's all part of this as uh, they try to figure it out. And again, any baseball fan is just saying, hey, get it done. I, I don't care what it is. Give me what the rules of the season are going to be, how many games, and then I'll sort out what it's going to be like for my team. And we'll do that uh, for what it might be like for the New York Mets, as we have done it at times now that we know there will be a designated hitter. But I'm sure there will be other rule changes, roster machinations that will be uh, a part of this. And we'll find out more about the weeks ahead. And we'll, I think planning it as of now uh, we'll do a lot more on this for our next podcast dropping on Friday morning uh, I want to go back a couple of podcasts Tim I told you we're going to bounce around a little bit uh, we had the opportunity to interview Sandy Alderson at length and it's the first long-form interview I've heard Sandy do about his time with the Mets and he's now been outside the organization for a period of a, right around two years uh there were a lot of things that were uh, fascinating, whether it be him not, not knowing exactly how big a hole he was walking into in terms of the Bernie Madoff situation and how it was going to impact the franchise when he first walked in as the general manager of the Mets to you know his personal wild ride in, in 2015. And, and maybe wild ride isn't putting it the right way, but the Mets wild ride all while Sandy uh, dealt with uh, a cancer diagnosis where on a Saturday, the Mets clinch the NL East. And by Thursday, Sandy Alderson finds out he has cancer. And, you know, that being a reality for him waiting for these surgeries as the Mets are moving on the playoffs in October. And he acknowledged that he, he probably, you know, wasn't a hundred percent locked in uh, during that month of, uh, of October. But, you know, what were some of the things that, that stood out to you, from Sandy and then we kind of look you know big picture how what kind of job did Sandy Alderson do as the general manager of the New York Mets which uh he kind of left up to us a little bit more than he wanted to answer yeah I think generally when you talk about uh people's tone in an interview diplomatic and candid don't come they come across as kind of opposites you know I thought throughout that interview Alderson was kind of diplomatically candid he was both at the same time uh, he wasn't throwing anyone under the bus necessarily about his tenure with the Mets, but you know I thought he was relatively open in a way that that uh, I hadn't heard him uh, in, in talking about not only that fall of 2015 uh, and everything he was going through personally during this this professional roller coaster, uh, but also kind of the the uncertainty uh, of the Madoff situation. And you know I I didn't expect going into that interview that Sandy would be the first person to say the name Bernie Madoff. Uh, for instance. Um, and, you know, what I hadn't thought about or hadn't appreciated uh, was just the level of financial uncertainty that he had to operate with as a general manager throughout his tenure, because it's it's made off at the start. It's David Wright and insurance money uh, later on in his tenure. Uh, it's do we get a third baseman to replace David or not on a regular basis? 
You know, that was, I think there were a lot of, th- this job with the Mets is always going to be difficult. Uh, you know, being a general manager of any baseball team is difficult. The, the Mets present, present uh, specific hurdles to a general manager uh, with ownership in this market. Uh, but it, it, it's probably true that Alderson was the general manager of the Mets during as difficult a time as it's ever been to be the general manager of the New York Mets. Uh, and and I think, there was some you know, success in that time, going to the World Series in 2015. And it just—I said this to him, but it, it felt like he was—he got a lot of the big things done early, and then that after 2015, I guess really the offseason after 2016, because you could look at that season and say Noah Syndergaard. Oh uh, well, that was uh, 2017, but 2016 they did you know make it to the the wild card round, and even if 17 you want to look at Syndergaard getting hurt, Cespedes getting hurt, and that submarining them. There were some really ugly off seasons that that followed going into 2018, and then we're talking about Brody Van Wagenen's off season. But uh, it just feels like there's a, a a really good core that was built. They did a lot of the hard things, and then couldn't seal the deal. Couldn't add those other pieces, you know, Daniel Murphy leaves after 2015 and uh, the, the free agents they brought in, they just, they didn't hit in the way that they did on Bartolo Colon and uh, to a degree, Curtis Granderson as well. Yeah. I mean, when you look at, at where they were uh, going from where they were when Alderson takes the job in the fall of 2010 and dealing with uh, the the trimmer payroll that he had to deal with to get that team to where it was in 2015. I mean, even to get that team to where it was in, in the fall of 2015 from the start of 2015 uh, is a pretty <laughs> remarkable job as a general manager. Uh, and then the, the thing that I think leaves him a little bit remorseful uh, is you look at where they were at the end of 2015 and, and you've got that pitching staff uh, and you've got some of the younger players they had under control. You know, you've got a, a Michael Conforto coming up through your system at that time. Uh, and you think that this should be the start of a longer run of mm-hmm. competitiveness. You know, maybe that they certainly weren't a team that you looked at the way that you looked at the Cubs in 2015. You said the Cubs are going to go into 2016 probably as the favorite in the National League. Uh, the, the Cubs look like a team that should win the World Series in the next couple of years. I, after 2015, I didn't think this was a team that's destined to win a World Series. But it seemed like a team that was going to be in the postseason with some regularity for the next half decade. Uh, as they had all those pitchers under control, you know, you've got all those guys for inexpensive pre-arbitration deals or, or young in arbitration, mm-hmm. and then you can build around them. You can pay for the sluggers outside, which they kind of, you know, they did to an extent with Cespedes, uh, and it just didn't work out. They didn't, you know, Conforto didn't have kind of the linear development you wanted in, in 16, and he got hurt in 17 late in the year. Uh, like the Jay Bruce signing uh, after uh, the 2017 season didn't work out. Uh, Seriously, any of the, of the free bullpen. agent signings. Right. I mean, any look, of the bullpen uh, moves didn't work out. There are certain times when you don't want to have to go to the doctor's office to get help for a medical condition. If you're dealing with a condition like erectile dysfunction, you want treatment as soon as possible. So that's why our friends at Roman have spent years building a digital platform that connect you with a doctor licensed in your state, all from the comfort of your home. Roman makes it convenient to get the treatment you need on your schedule. Just grab your phone or computer, complete a free online visit, and you'll hear back from a U.S. licensed physician within 24 hours. And if the doctor decides the treatment is right for you, Roman's Pharmacy can ship your medication to you with free two-day shipping. You'll also get free unlimited follow-ups with your doctor anytime you have questions or want to adjust your treatment plan. With Roman, there are no commitments, and you could cancel any time. So if you're struggling with ED, 
Go to GetRoman.com slash Mets for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. That's GetRoman.com slash Mets for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. And we thank you for supporting our sponsors. The, the trade deadline in 2017 where they got like 10 relievers and none of them really panned out. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that offseason, you're looking at Anthony Swarzak, Jason Vargas, Jay Bruce, and Todd Frazier. I mean, that's how bad that offseason was. And, you know, this is a team that was close. If they hit on two of those, I think you're looking at a playoff team uh, for, you know, all the things that went wrong. The other thing that, that Sandy hinted at a couple of times, I should say hinted at, he said it, is that as time went on, the, the culture kind of reverted back to what it was before. And it was, I probably should have followed up on it, but it, it kind of felt like the, the Mets were always going against their history, that they, they haven't had long sustained success. And, and that seemed to be what, what Sandy's opinion was, or, or maybe just the, the culture from the top down, uh, but that there seemed to be a, a fight there. And that you know, basically Mickey Calloway, with the way things started, at least, uh, you know, tens of games into the 2018 season that that everything kind of reverted back culturally. And that was that was an interesting thought to me. Yeah, we, we didn't get a chance to because I think we were more than an hour into the interview at that point uh, to get kind of <laughs> deeper thoughts uh, on on why Callaway in particular didn't work out because he mentioned kind of the the rough start in 2018. And that is, you know, obviously they were 11 and one right at the start of the year, uh, but mm-hmm. you know they were back to 500 pretty quickly. Uh, and I obviously had the, the terrible June that really threw them under the bus. Uh, you know, th- that it seemed like the the negativity of 2017, just kind of that lost season for another for a team that expected to be good, which is always the worst season to, to go through. You know, people talk about how, how miserable it must be to be like on the Marlins. So you kind of know going in you're not going to be any good. Uh, and while that's hard, it's probably not as hard as really expecting to have a good season going out and going 70 and 92 or whatever it is. Uh, so I think the negativity from that 17 season it wasn't fully placated by the, the first 12 games of 2018 or by the managerial change. And then by June, you had it kind of spiraling in the wrong direction. Uh, and, and all this, you know, you know, he was, he was not going to be with the team much longer beyond that because of, of the, the recurrence of cancer. And, and they just couldn't stem that tide, uh, really until a year later, the all-star break of, of 2019 when they started playing better again. I'd give Sandy a B for his tenure overall. You think that's a fair grade, Tim? I, I think the organization was in a better spot when he was leaving than it was when he got there. So I think if if you're looking at it uh, in strictly like, you know, reliever comes in with, with a runner on first and, and one out and he leaves with a runner on first and two <laughs> outs, that's a better spot, you know? Um uh, he was a success in that way. I think you can break it into the the component parts. I think the first half of his tenure was more successful than the second half, even though the team success came in the, the second half more so. I, I, probably not, uh, not even even half. The first five years were more successful than the last yeah. uh, last two and a half, whatever you want to call it. Uh, so it's it's not a full full throated success, but I think it's more successful than it was unsuccessful over his time. I, I, I used to say that it was five years in. He's an A. How do you argue against what he has done in this time, even looking at, say, after the 2016 season? Uh, but as I've talked about, those those last few years and, and some of those decisions, the hiring of Mickey Calloway and the free agent calls, uh, I, I think that those 
you know, obviously they, they did not pan out uh, for the Mets. He, he did draft Jared Kelnick, and uh, we did hear him kind of kind of scoff a little bit when I brought Kelnick's name up, and now Sandy's in the same division, and it's Kelnick in the AL West with Kelnick with the Mariners and uh, Sandy working under Billy Bean there in Oakland. A uh, couple of other topics I want to hit before we uh, call it a show here. One, Lenny Dykstra's defamation and libel lawsuit against Ron Darling was dismissed. And how it was dismissed is probably the most noteworthy thing. If you know the backstory on this, Ron Darling, in a book that came out last year, in that book, he wrote that Lenny Dykstra uh, let out a, a string of racial epithets at Oil Can Boyd before one of the World Series games at Fenway Park that rivaled anything that Jackie Robinson would have heard in his day. Uh, so Lenny took umbrage with this, sued, uh, but the judge ruled that Dykstra's reputation for unsportsmanlike conduct and bigotry is already so tarnished that it cannot be further injured. And if that is not the story of Lenny Dykstra, <laughs> that you know that reminded me uh, when I was in uh, when I was at Duke, they they pulled out of a a football series with the University of Louisville and Louisville tried to sue Duke for pulling out of it because they couldn't find a suitable replacement and Duke terrible at football at the time more so than they are now argued that any other team would have been a suitable replacement <laughs> they were the worst team so anyone else would have been suitable uh this reminded me of that that there was this there was no lower you could go uh for Lenny uh and, and that's where they stand now uh, one more topic I, I want to hit here as part of your series, Tim, the, the Red Seats Pub, where you throw out a question that Mets fans can can bite about and uh, yell at each other about. If you had to pick one closer to wrap up a big game, who would that closer be is, is what you threw out there. So give us, give us the short list of what you came up with and what a lot of the fans were saying in terms of some of the options in Mets history. Yeah, so, you know, the Mets have... Uh, I think by virtue of, of operating on the other side of town of, of, as Mariano Rivera for, for 20 years at one point, uh, it seemed like the Mets had this litany of terrible closers when in actuality several of them were, were really quite good. Uh, you look at, at John Franco and, and Armando Benitez, uh, who fans still roll their eyes at, and, and Billy Wagner and Jerry's Familia, and then you go back to the 70s and Tug McGraw, the 80s and Jesse Orozco. Those, those are your your six leaders in saves. They're like six of the top eight Mets relievers all time in, in wins above replacement. So those were really the, the half dozen of guys I was looking at. Uh, and it's surprising when you look at their postseason ERAs that all of like five of those six have postseason ERAs of like two and a half and lower. And Wagner's the one that's up there. Wagner's postseason ERA is over 10. Uh, in his career, it's nine and a half with the Mets from from that 06 postseason. Uh, and so you've got a lot of guys who were like dominant in the regular season, but have notable blown saves. All of them have blown a big game at some point. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think when you combined everything, uh, McGraw seemed like the guy who would be the best bet. You know, his I, I love this. His blown save was in game two of the 73 World Series when he pitched six innings out of the bullpen. He pitched, took over in the sixth inning and pitched into the 12th. Uh, he threw 13-plus innings in that World Series, which tied the most ever. Raleigh Fingers threw 13 for the A's on the other side. Uh, so I thought McGraw, with the combination of regular season success, postseason success, his postseason ERA uh, was was like one and a half or, or 1.6, something like that. 
uh, and the length that he gave you out of the bullpen. You can imagine, you know, we talked about it with like Andrew Miller and, and Aroldis Chapman and those guys going deeper a couple of years ago uh, in the postseason and, and McGraw was doing more than they had ever done uh, at that time and in a dominant fashion. So I think that's that's the guy who stood out to me, uh, even though part of me went into the exercise thinking, I wonder if it is actually Armando Benitez. <laughs> I thought you were going to go with Armando. Now, Tug McGraw is a little difficult for us because we, we can only go by the numbers and the reputation, and I, I think that's fair. I think based on those things, what we uh, you know, were raised with, uh, with the Mets, in addition to the numbers and looking back at some of these things, Tug McGraw uh, is a, a very good choice uh, for one closer to close out a big game. But if you're going by the eyeball test and what you experienced, so then we cross out Tug McGraw, I mean, to me, 2015, Jairus Familia, I, I know ultimately it did not work out. As we talked about with Sandy Alderson, the quick pitch to Alex Gordon blowing game one, which uh, Sandy thinks, you know, really uh, cost them that World Series. Not just Familia, but also Ioannis Cespedes' misplay on uh, the inside the park home run to begin that game. But I, I still, what Jairus Familia did up to that point at the very least, the two innings that he threw game five, the division series against the Dodgers in a one run game, retired Chase Utley in that game as well. And you also look back at some of those blown saves uh, in the world series. There weren't a whole lot of hard hit balls uh, in those games, even as um, you know, he did blow three saves. I, 2015 Jairus Familia to me was a, a pretty dominant reliever. When you look back at Mets history and in terms of what he did in the regular season and the first half of the, uh, of the postseason. Yeah, I don't. I don't think you can. Like, I, I don't really put much blame at Familia for the games four and five blown saves in that World Series. They're both with inherited runners, uh, which to me doesn't seem quite like a, a blown save in the same way. Uh, and that that regular season was that's the most saves a Met has ever had. And you know, we talk, closers generally are throwing like sixty to sixty five innings in a season. Familia threw, I think, seventy eight that year or something. You know, a really high number. For a, a closer, Terry Collins was going to him constantly those two seasons in 15 and 16. And you mentioned that that game five of the division series, you know, as clutch a relief performance as a Met has probably ever had in the postseason. You know, up there with, with anything else you want to throw out there to get six outs on the road against that lineup all in a one-run game. Uh, that's a remarkable performance. Uh, you know, Benitez in 99 kind of had a similar season like that. Oh, he had a one eight five ERA in 1999, the like height of steroid era stuff, uh, and had been so dominant against the Braves, the team that the Mets couldn't beat. Uh, you know, the Braves went 0 for 26 against him to start uh, that season. Like they didn't get their first base runner off of him in the entire year until game five of the NLCS. And then, of course, he, he couldn't close the deal in Game 6 of that NLCS. If, if Benitez mm. closes Game 6 in the 10th inning, the Mets win that series in Game 7. Because every Mets fan will tell you that they were definitely going to win Game 7. There's no way that, that Hall of Famer Tom Glavin was going to do anything in that game. <laughs> um, and I, I say that kind of sarcastically, but no, I, I really do believe the Mets would have won Game 7. Uh, then Benitez, you know, perhaps that alters Benitez's postseason reputation a little bit. Uh, and, and we're talking about him uh, a little bit more seriously here. That'd be fun if they had they pulled that off right before the uh, the O four Red Sox. You'd have the Mets coming back from uh, down three zero in a series and and making that all happen, but not not to be as it uh, as it turns out. But yeah, all right. So you'll take Benitez. I'll take Familia, and uh, we'll we'll call the whole thing off 
But uh, now about to do it for this show. The plan for Friday as of now, and it just feels like uh, a lot can happen between now and then, is to, to dive a little bit more into these negotiations between Major League Baseball and the Players Association and have uh, an expert on to, to guide us through what is happening and uh, what needs to get done in order for this season to, to happen in the year of 2020. And boy, could we use some baseball in the midst of everything that is uh, occurring in this country at the moment. But uh, good show, Tim. Uh, always a pleasure, my friend. Adios.